Hello, and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Brian. I'm Sean. How are you today, Sean? I'm actually genuinely... Truly, super as always. Have you got a doctor's note to prove it? I don't need one. Yeah, no, both of us are, are in fine fettle, as they say, I think. Yeah, knock on wood. Knock on wood. The sun is out, spring is here, life begins again. It's amazing. <laughs> Without really planning it, we are now about to do part two of a special two-part series here on Broad Appeal, which I've uh, christened... Yale girls in space. Yeah. I mean, who are we going to make contact with this week? <laughs> well, it's that wonderful two-time Academy Award-winning actress, Jodie Foster. Grace. Yeah, Grace. Jodie Foster, who, remarkably, we haven't mentioned all that much um, on this podcast, even though she's, like, such an important actress in the 1990s, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, it, it begins in the 70s, of course, doesn't it? Her career. Yeah. Obviously, she started as a as a child, but really a child. Do you know what her very first on-screen role was? It was not in a film or a television program. Um, was it an ad then or something? Jodie Foster was the original Coppertone girl. Does that mean anything to you? Um, it's either for like your hair or a car or something, is it? No, no. It was a sun cream. And this is an image where it's a very... No, say it properly, but say it in American. A suntan lotion. It used to be called suntan lotion, now it's called sunscreen. I never it? know what to call anything sunblock. anymore. I ne- Sunblock, sunscreen. Sunblock, sunscreen, sunblock, sunscreen. <laughs> and people say that I've had no influence on him. Can you throw <laughs> in some Yiddish there? Uh, you're a real putz, aren't you? Well, it's oh, I try to be a yenta. Okay, anyway, sunblocks, no copper tone. So Jodie Foster, as a small child, was in the advertisement for copper tone, and a small little dog was pulling at the bottom of her bikini and revealing her naked bum. Maybe for the the first and only time in cinema has, has Jodie ever shown her bum in anything else? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, you would not get away with that ad these days. No, you probably wouldn't. No. How do how do you feel about about Jodie Foster? I mean, it, you know, she started so young. One of the things that's amazing to remember is that she's actually still only fifty three years old. I, she's been around forever. Yeah. She's a fixture in an institution, but that's that's not really very old. No, it's not, is it? But also, she started in like seriously quality films at a young age. Well, yes and no. She did a lot of sort of Disney teen flicks for well, a while. I'm I'm just trying to think. I mean. She was in, like, Freaky Friday. Yeah. She was in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and all this kind of stuff for Disney. What about um, Bugsy Malone and stuff? Well, yeah, so that with the kind of one-two punch of working with Martin Scorsese and Alan Parker. I mean, you know, Bugsy Malone is a, is a kid's film, but a kind of ambitious one. But Taxi Driver is not a kid's film. No. Right? Doesn't she play a 12-year-old hooker or something? I don't know if she's 12, but she's a teenage hooker, and obviously the material is dark, 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 you know? I think she got an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress for that. So, I mean, really, Jodie's career could have gone any number of ways. I suppose she might have ended up as a kind of Lindsay Lohan cautionary tale, someone who is very talented at a young age but can't transition into adult parts, but she did. Yeah, she did, but not without, like, all this terrible shit happening to her in her early life. Oh, what do you mean? I mean, like, wasn't Taxi Driver pretty prophetic in some ways? About? Well, doesn't he end up, like, killing a, a senator or something? Yeah, and of course, you know, 
I mean, it should be said that adolescent. I mean, Travis Bickle is sexy. Let's just <laughs> let's just put it out there. I would. I would. Well, so Jody, as you know, as she was growing up, she she valued her education. She went off to Yale. Sadly, someone else followed her to New Haven and stalked her, and then tried to get her attention in a macabre and criminal fashion by as- attempting to assassinate the president of the United States. I think that's a pretty mean thing to say about Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> Sigourney could have got her attention at the Yale Dramat alumni meetings, Sean. Yeah. Um, no, I am not talking about Sigourney Weaver. I'm talking about, of course, John Hinckley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, Brian, I mean, I had this kind of memory of just after John Hinckley had killed, not, <laughs> wait, not killed, shot President Reagan, like, Jodie Reese's statement. I've never seen it before since, but she's standing on, like, a, a footpath and these reporters are there. And she's saying things like, I never spoke to John Hingley. I never heard from John Hingley. I never had any correspondence with John Hingley. I never had any correspondence with a man called John S. or John H. I never spoke to President Reagan. I don't know President Reagan. I never had any correspondence with President Reagan. Like, Well, I mean, you can imagine how she might be, might be, would definitely be completely freaked out by such a thing, right? I mean, I keep trying... forgetting that Reagan was shot. He, he nearly died. Because of Jodie Foster. Well, because of John Hinckley, yeah. you know, and his obsession. But yes, um, he was the leader of the free world. I mean, we might be living under Soviet communism right now if it hadn't been for his recovery. Who was his VP at the time? Bush. Uh, Bush, yeah, the original Well, Bush. that means we would have got the Bush years over quicker. <laughs> we wouldn't have had horrible Reaganism, neoliberalism. And maybe Margaret Thatcher wouldn't have had an ally. And, you know, the, the NHS would still be as good as it ever was. And mm. uh, and maybe, just maybe, John Hinckley would have done us all a favour. No, we are not arguing for this. Okay, fine. <laughs> I would like to see an alternate reality, uh, like, speculative fiction, in which Reagan is killed by John Hinckley. Well, um, you can also enjoy Stephen Sondheim's musical Assassins, in which John Hinckley and Squeaky From sing a lovely 1970s style duet about their, their love for Jody and Charles Manson. You put the gun right into my hand, Jody. Sean, the next time you mix up Stephen Sondheim and Jerry Herman, this podcast is over, and I think our listeners know why. Okay, all right. right. So we are making fun of this, but this is a terrible thing to happen. I mean, Jody could have retreated into a crazy hermit-like existence, but but she did. That was her eighties for long. Yeah, her eighties. Oh my god! If anybody wants to like see a bunch of words thrown together that you've never heard before, just look at the movies that Jodie Foster made from like nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty nine. TV film called Svengali. I don't know things I'd never heard of. Yeah, I mean the only eighties film with Jodie Foster I can name is The Accused, which is like a fucking documentary. <laughs> Thank you, Sandra You're Bernhard. Welcome. Welcome. Well, it's also, it comes right at the end of the 80s. She won the Academy Award for that, and then her next film was Silence of the Lambs. I but mean, that, but that was like two years later. Yeah, well, I don't think she made anything in between. Serious? I'm, I'm pretty sure. I looked it up. But she, it's like a one-two punch. Like, phenomenal. And we recently rewatched Silence of the Lambs. Not for the podcast. It was actually our, our <laughs> Valentine's Day viewing. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Was that my suggestion? <laughs> I think Probably. so. I did come away with an appreciation of that film because it kind of, in many ways, it kind of reminds me of Silent Era in the sense that the film is made in a lot of extreme close-ups, which we did, which I only noticed seeing it on a big screen this time because we have a projector. Jonathan Demi really like clipped 
the face off them. You're absolutely right. And I think the thing that I hadn't really remembered so crucially, because I think in my mind, Jodie Foster, to be honest, is a bit of a stereotype right now. She's a bit of like the parody of Jodie Foster, the kind of like Kate McKinnon version on Saturday Night Live that's like, I'll kiss you now, sure, if you don't mind. <laughs> like that kind of thing. But in Silence of the Lambs, she is a young woman. She is an FBI trainee and she has this flinty quality that kind of is hovering between innocence and strength yeah and you watch her wavering and you watch her figuring things out and growing and sort of feeling how she can navigate and negotiate this horrible world and it must have been so intense for her having done both the accused and this uh signs of lambs themes of sexual violence from a woman who you know had been stalked and i mean mm. she didn't shy away from yeah. like addressing those kinds of issues yeah, i never thought of that i mean like do you, so do you think like the awards that she got for especially for maybe science of the lambs um was kind of like the, her peers saying you know we know that you, we know that your life has been seriously fucked up by some things and you've used that experience and kind of channeled it into a creative you know yeah i mean She's been through a lot. She has been through a lot. I mean, not just all of that. She also got all the way through Anna and the King with Chow yeah. Yun-Fat and Summersby. Yeah, Jodi, I think... I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> any movie where Jodi has to wear, like, a big old dress doesn't really work. Period costumes for Jodi, not so much. No. No, and she, I think, you know, she did have a lot of misfires there with Maverick and Summersby and other things. It's, it's it, like... I sort of think of Jodie as, like, one of these actresses that if she were a man, there would probably be lots more roles yeah. for her. It's funny you say that, because the thing about Jodie Foster is that she's a very credible actress and she's very good in the things that she's in. But I think what the closest to a romantic comedy she's in is, like, uh, Maverick with Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, you know, you shaved me too. <laughs> But that's, Part of the circle. But that's yeah, yeah. one of the circle. And the circle, don't speak of the circle. Why are we making fun of her? We're just saying how because good she is. Because she's easy to make fun of. I know. That's why. Because because of what society tells us a woman should be. No, no, no. It's because Jodie Foster, like, like, there's two sides to it, okay? Yeah. One is that we hold her in, in so much esteem that Jodie Foster is just Jodie Foster. She's not like anybody else. Yeah. She has a long quality filmography. Uh, for example, uh, a very long engagement which she speaks French. She also is a fluent French speaker. Mm. But at the same time, she's definitely an attractive woman and has a very interesting look about her. But she's no, like, blonde, soft Let's features. say it. She's too butch. No, she's not too butch. There she's is too a, strong. That, well, yeah, but that's what society reads yeah. it as. Society reads her as masculine and strong in a way that we don't think of leading actresses yeah. as being. It's hard to slot her into a Meg Ryan or a Julia Roberts role. And as it turns out, there's not enough of these roles for a person like Jodie Foster. And that's why she succeeds when she does succeed in these kind of thrillers and also why she's turned her strength and her determination and her obvious intelligence toward directing. You know, she's had some mild critical hits, although nothing really... The Beaver. <laughs> Home for the holidays. Well, her new movie, what's it called again? Uh, like Crazy Money or Mad Money or Dirty oh, is it, Money. Isn't Mad Money that one with... I think we, it's called Mad Money. 
I thought Mad Money was that one with Queen Latifah and Diane Keaton and Katie Holmes, which... I keep mixing that up with Hanging God, up. sometime whenever we do a drunk episode, we really need to do that <laughs> Brian, one. Brian, I think I've done a few drunk episodes <laughs> by, by now. Let's, let's, let's we, admit we it. We missed April Fool's Day. That would have been a good one. But anyway, yeah, but her new movie, Mad Money with George Clooney, I think it's opening the Cannes Film Festival. Is it? I think so. Was she in any of those, like, I Valentine's hope- Day, uh, you know, Mother's Day... Uh, I feel like she would have been in Earth Day if they'd done Earth Day. It would have to be a holiday. It would have to be a holiday that's really sincere, has no humor and no romance. So Earth I'm Day, not single, quite, single camera. I'm not quite sure what film that would have been. But actually, she did. I mean, talk about holidays. She did Home for the Holidays with Holly Hunter, the only movie I can think of that's hey, about Thanksgiving. We mentioned Holly Hunter doing the Jodie Foster role in Copycat. In Copycat I had no did. idea they were they actually worked together. They did, they did. No wonder my mother confuses them so much. Is she the only semi-out actress that we've looked at on this podcast? She's basically out by now. I know the Golden Globes. I don't know she, what you're saying. She ev- <laughs> Like, out <laughs> where? Is a super injunction? <laughs> There's no super injunction. She's open about the fact that she has a female partner. No, she said, I'm proud, I'm shingle. In the speech, but she's now confirmed that she has. Well, if you watched it partners. with me, if you watched it with me, which I've asked you to before, I've watched it plenty of times. It makes me uncomfortable. Well, I'll watch it alone then. <laughs> I mean, I think it makes me feel uncomfortable because I don't want Jodie to feel so awkward in front of so many people. Like, okay, she doesn't want to be a lesbian poster girl, and I guess you know if you're had the experience of public life where someone tried to kill the president because of you, you might want to keep, you know, things close to the vest as well. Would you say that's had an effect on her? Like, Jody. Yeah. I'd say it has. I think definitely. Oh, I'd say it has. There's, a, say it has. there's, a, there's a prickliness about yeah. her relation to the press and stuff. But, okay, so the film we are watching is not a thriller. No. But Jody is one woman against the world. And when we say the world, we mean the cosmos. It's called Contact. Um, just to wrap up, because I, I like we we discovered that this film is really long, so we ought to get to it. How long is it? Yeah, it's two and a half hours. If I which, that which mystifies me because I saw this film when it came out in 1997, and I can't for the life of me remember very much plot except like Jody is uh, is someone who believes in aliens. She hears from some aliens. And she goes to outer space. Like, that, I can't imagine how they stretch that out to two and a half hours. Yeah, but this is one of those spaces profound films, isn't it? There are no guns and hunting down aliens in this movie. There's a lot more... I mean, well, it's first of all, it's based on a book and an original idea from a real astrophysicist, Carl Sagan. Does that name mean anything to you, Sean? Um, is he anything like Henry Kissinger? Carl Sagan. They sound they, they sound like similar names. In what in what way? I don't. I'm not even Sagan, sure. Sagan have... Kissinger. <laughs> not even no. sure. There's a G in both of them. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Carl Sagan was a was an astrophysicist who was famous for popularizing various ideas about astronomy, and he made what I think was one of the most popular miniseries on PBS ever called Cosmos, which is all about like the outer reaches of the solar system. So when I say to you the, the letters PBS... Actually, Sesame Street is the first thing that comes to mind. Sesame Street, yes. But also public. So I presume it was like earnest kind of uh, public interest, not like guns and weapons and flash in the pan, Fox stuff. 
No, like educational. It's like, like NPR on TV. Yes, exactly like NPR on TV. And I feel like Cosm- uh, Contact sorry, is going to have a bit of that same quality. That it's like the profundity of space and kind of the beauty of science and the mm-hmm. rationality. Because it, it kind of comes, even though it's science fiction, it, it has that pro-science bent to it. That's my memory. Yeah, but Brian, you told me before we started recording this that you were not into probably the greatest sci-fi film ever made, 2001 Space Odyssey. I never said that, Sean. I never said that. I just said that I didn't respond to it as much as most people. And I also, I'm not convinced that Stanley Kubrick does actually think space is profound. I think Stanley Kubrick thinks space is like a big black cosmic void and a joke. And it's just at the end that we get that like hovering fetus. This movie, it like, if like Stanley Kubrick is like a dark comedian compared to Contact, directed by Robert Zemeckis. Don't forget the man who brought us Forrest Gump, right? Uh, The man who brought us Death Becomes Her, Michael Shulman. (laughs) Do you know who originally was supposed to direct this film? George Miller. That's right. (laughs) George Miller. It was going to be George Miller of Mad Max fame. I I can only imagine what what that one would have been like. Probably a bit more like Lorenzo's oil. (laughs) (laughs) Do you believe the man who directed Mad Max Fury Road also did Lorenzo's oil? And and, and won his only Oscar for Happy Feet. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just Jodie who's going... um, who's going to be on our screen. We have a, a, a host of interesting character actors. Well, first of all, a very young romantic lead paired against Jodie. If you could, if you had an algorithm to design the man least compatible with Jodie Foster, I think you might come up with Matthew McConaughey. Well, yeah, well, I mean, if Mel Gibson and her had a thing, then... No, but they're both weird. Like, yeah. Matthew McConaughey <laughs> is like, I mean, all right, all right, all right. I, it's so funny, because, like, Matthew McConaughey didn't really become a person I actually took notice of until, like, Killer Joe was the first film. Yeah, the, the I love reconnaissance yeah. that, that came about. You That's know, because he was just doing those movies with Kate frickin' Hudson for the longest time. I personally think he's a douchebag, and I really don't like uh, Dallas Buyers Club, and neither do you. No. Um, but I do love Killer Joe, so I've got a bit of a soft spot for that film. But I, I mean... This film was 97. He was like the stud of the moment, which is why it's so funny. I mean, Sean, I, I don't remember lots about this movie, but I do remember a very awkward post-coital scene early on, I think, between Jody and Matthew. No that, dry humping, no? <laughs> we'll see. But um, you're also going to see a whole host of your other favorites. I mean, it, Angela Bassett. In one of her oh. early imperious bureaucrat God, roles. I love her so much. Yeah? Love her. We're going to see, I'm sure we're going to see a host of other character actors playing government functionaries and bureaucrats and scientists of all kinds. And eventually, some point after two and a half hours, we will find out what alien life forms are like. Okay, let's make some contact. <laughs> all right. 35 percent. Copy that, 35%. Mechanical? We're good. 40%. I'm picking up a moderate vibration here. Dynamics, can you confirm vibration? Everything looks good here. She's feeling the same thing they felt at the Cape at this point. Allie, the vibration is normal. We are at 50%, all systems nominal. Copy that, 50%. Vibration's getting a little stronger now. We're picking up some low-frequency noise. Mechanical, can you confirm? It looks fine to me. Roger. Jerry, what do you think? I'm still good. 
People, we are still go. Uh, something's happening. I, 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 I'm, there's, there's a light. Do you see that? I'm seeing something. Something. I can't tell whether it's daylight or not. It's there. It is again. It's coming from the bottom. Uh, here, let me show it to you. Do you see that? Negative. Ella, you're breaking up. Tom one. Can we boost our signal? Ready at maximum. Sixty-five percent. The material is changing. It's bordering on translucence. I'm okay to go. Sean? I'm okay to go. Sean, are you there? I'm okay to go. Sean? I'm okay to go. Okay to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay to go, Brian. <laughs> Just before we started recording this, you said you had a reaction to this movie you didn't expect. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, but I don't ever want to see it again. <laughs> but you, like, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So it's two and a half hours long. It is very long. It is very long. It did not feel that long to me, but at least they go to different places in it, you know? Yeah, so let's... It's not like a play. It's not set in the one room or anything. <laughs> oh, those terrible plays. God, who would spend their time devoting themselves to plays? We do go to an awful lot of uh, locations. In fact, the first location where we first see Jodie Foster, you recognize, isn't that right? Yeah, I was watching it thinking, I've seen this before. This observatory. I mean, how many giant observatories are there with huge concrete, like, inverted domes? Yeah. And not that many, it turns out. And it was in Goldeneye, the climactic scene in Goldeneye, which you remember, of course. Of course. In which a satellite system falls on Sean Bean and he perishes. I'm sure that observatory in Puerto Rico has been used for all sorts of action-adventure climaxes. It is not used for much action here. And it has to be said... Well, Jody <laughs> does get laid Oh, nearby. yeah, that's true. There is a bit of that kind of action. Some knocking of some boots. All right, all right, all right. We'll get to that. But so... It has to be said, this movie is two and a half hours long, and it really delays the sci-fi. At one point, I thought to myself, this isn't a space movie at all. This is an Earth movie. Oh, very astute. Very astute. <laughs> no, but it really is. It's it's actually a political thing. It's a, it's, it's a film about funding. <laughs> it's a film about funding the space program. Can, can I say that actually one of the things that I remember most about the movie, and I think one of the nicest touches, is the very opening sequence which contains absolutely no actors at all. In fact, when it, when it started, you were a bit confused. You're like, is the sound right? Because what do we what do we hear, first of all? We just hear like little snippets of like radio TV frequencies, you know? Yeah, so it's, music. it's like garbled music and we hear well, one of the ones we could discern was Wanna Be by the Spice Girls. Yes, which, now, Sean, you being the resident Spiceologist, mm -hmm. you would know what year did... Uh... Uh, 96, I think. Yeah, so it would have been... So basically, the reason why the Spice Girls is being beamed into outer space is because we are watching, or we're listening to, radio transmissions being sent out from Earth into the cosmos, and they're going back in time. So yeah. it's going from 96... 
Yeah, all the way back to the early radio frequency. Yeah, all the way back until the 1930s, and then it's just silence. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive sequence. As we go to the outer reaches of the galaxy and zoom in on the iris of a small girl. The thing I like about Robert Zemeckis is that he does take the time to do things, you know? Movies today would never be as earnest as oh, that. Oh, God, film. yeah, this is super earnest. Now, little Jodie Foster, played by a very young Jenna Malone, her name is Ellie Arroway. Her mother is dead. She's obsessed with the cosmos. Then her dad is dead, okay? Yeah, but her dad introduces oh, yeah. her to science. Yeah, her dad introduces her to science. She loves science. She has no time for religion. She sees science as the answer. Okay. But what is she, Sean? <laughs> what is she? What is she doing with this? She's she's not just looking up at the stars and telescopes. She's also she has a ham radio. <laughs> yeah, like all good little girls. Yeah, she she tries, has no friends, but a ham radio. <laughs> she tries to talk to people as far away as possible, and it does have that cloying thing. Oh my god. The deployment of dead parents sometimes for philosophical points, like where where she's her ham radio has allowed her to speak all the way to Pensacola, Florida, and then of course she says to to dad, "Do you think we can ever talk to mom?" Oh, I don't think we could reach that far, honey. Yeah. Dead parents and dead children. What is it about them in sci-fi? What gravity? Didn't Interstellar, I think, also have a like meeting a, a child in another time zone. Now, plot. let's not pretend we went to see that film. <laughs> no, we, we did didn't. Not. We didn't, but... Anything with Anne Hathaway, double whammy with Matthew McConaughey, just sends us in the opposite direction. Please, screenwriters, there are ways to express the profundity of space that do not have to do with meeting our dead relatives. Just, that's funny. He's in two films about the profundity of space. At least two, maybe three, who knows. <laughs> so that's our, that's our flashback story. Ellie is an orphan, right? Yeah. Not unlike Clary Starling. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And she grows up to be Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. Okay, let's race through the plot, okay? Okay. So, flash forward about 20-something years. Yeah. Um, she is a research scientist in various parts of the world with the big, big satellites. Her Not satellites, thing, telescopes. Whatever. Radio telescopes. What satellites are things in the air. Radioscope. Satellite dishes. That's it. Yeah. Let me start again. Flash forward 22 years. She is a research scientist with the career-ending interest of alien life, Seti. intelligent life. SETI, the search, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. intelligence. Yeah. So she's constantly told, you're wasting your time, you're going to die before... It. Like, as Tom Skerritt says, there's two things that will happen. Yeah, one, there is intelligent life out there, and you will never find it because you'll be dead before it ever happens. And two, there is no intelligent life and you're wasting your time. And who is Tom Skerritt? Tom Skerritt is like this honcho scientist. We're given the impression that actually he's quite important and does things, but he has no interest in in intelligent life out there. None. And, and you, know, you know, reasonably so. He's very concerned with using taxpayers' money profitably, right? Like, why are we spending money on these boondoggles? Uh, so he wants to shut down Jody's uh, intelligent life form. Uh, search and who's the other man in Jody's life when she's at this first uh, telescope base in Puerto Rico? Um, so she sleeps with. She does it before she meets him. Before she, she meets him, <laughs> she's not. She's not a gay man, is she? <laughs> um, she meets Matthew McConaughey, who who basically looks like he's on a gap year. <laughs> and by gap, we mean Gap, the clothing retailer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And um, he is like he's a he's not a man of the cloth exactly. He's a man of the cloth of the cloth. He says, and um, he's like 
uh, a theologian who believes that like he believes in the importance of science but also believes in, like the spirituality of it he's like he's a nobody at this point and she cops off with him and actually i think there's a nice representation of uh, of like a person's you know breasts in the film you know <laughs> Wait, whose his or hers 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 what do you mean a nice representation of a person's breasts no what i mean is that like in the post comic book thing i swear to god we see a tiny bit of nipple from Joey foster that's but possible also, as she gets dressed she just puts on her t-shirt in front of him, no pulling the sheet, <laughs> the sheet to her, you know, chest, like like every Sex and the City episode ever with Carrie Bradshaw. You know what I mean? I don't know. The way that Matthew McConaughey strokes Jodie Foster's hair, I, it looks more like the way you would stroke a cat. Yeah, well, he's the one who's uncomfortable, not her. <laughs> but she's I a think, man eater. I think they're both uncomfortable. We have to dwell slightly more on, on story, Matthew yeah. McConaughey. Oh. Okay. So oh, no, he, this he's, we can go into. he's a goo. He it, when we first meet him, yes, he is some kind of hippie theologian researching third world cultures and how technology has impacted them. He basically seems to be on a mission to say that while technology has helped us do certain things, it's made us lonelier in the world, and that we're all searching for meaning and he's all about the higher power and you know what if you could just flash forward 20 years i think he there's a lot to say about that yeah but for whatever reason his parents gave him the most ridiculous name yeah his name is palmer joss i mean why didn't screenwriters call him joss palmer i mean honestly palmer joss every time they keep saying reverend joss reverend joss it's not reverend joss yes later they called him reverend joss or Yes, that like. was Mr. Joss. No, 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 definitely uh, Reverend. Okay, Jody loses all funding. She goes searching for some more. She needs to search for private funding because the government takes all her money away. And um, so I do love South America, where you have these like eccentric trillionaires who yeah. want to, you know. <laughs> oh, because this was such a realistic no, portrayal. No, it's true. It's true. She, she comes into this boardroom, and there's the kind of three nitwitty executives who you think are the people she's talking to but actually the final decision of her grant proposal someone calls on a phone who's not in the room a phone that doesn't ring but lights up yeah and there's a there's a secret CCTV camera that's been recording the whole thing and we think who is the mysterious person who's pulling the strings to give Jody funding it's Mr. Haddon played by John Hurt yes describe what John Hurt looks like when we finally meet him um, he he's bald. He's wearing really cool gold glasses, and he's a bit like Gary Oldman in the early stages of Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think it's also he he's dying of cancer slowly. Yeah, and he seems to want to escape his death. So the reason he's so reclusive is he like flies around the world on a plane that never lands. Yeah, no, but that's not to cure the cancer. That's later on when he goes to space. Yeah, he goes into space. Anyway, there the scenes where Jody meets with John Hurt. They they have a bit of, of, of Hannibal Lecter about them, don't they? Because she's meeting this kind of effete, weird British man who likes to say things in a kind of a very arch way to her. And who clearly, like, he's basically... <laughs> yes, he's he researched... a video of her, of her, for her entire life. life. He's like, Ellie Arroway, born in such and such a time to Eleanor Arroway and so-and-so Arroway. Mother died. <laughs> the lambs were screaming, weren't they, Clarice? Ellie. <laughs> so basically, to cut a long story short, nobody believes in Jody. She is... She... She's hot-headed, isn't she? What kind of a what kind of she's a? She's not hot-headed. Hot-headed. She's passionate about what she believes in. 
Yeah, but what does she believe in? She basically seems to spend her time just with headphones on listening to radio signals. I was thinking, how expensive can this be? It's very expensive. Did you, <laughs> did you see all those telescopes? Or the ones that were moving. Yeah, because they... She, so Are they not telescopes? They're radio Te transmitters. That's better. Telescopes no, is something you look through. They're radio telescopes. Okay, it's fine. It's better. So she goes She goes to New Mexico, and she sits around in her Oldsmobile convertible with headphones on, listening to the radio transmissions from outer space. Seems to be all she does. She's like, no wonder people don't want to fund this crap. But she starts getting pulses from the far reaches of the galaxy. Yeah. Yeah, and so did our neighbours as well. They had to, they banged on the roof. Oh yeah, times. our neighbours our neighbours weren't happy. It's a very like it's not a loud film, but there is a lot of repetitive, <laughs> thumping in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so anyway, so um, do you want to briefly explain? So from what what part of the galaxy are these pulses emanating? Can't remember. Vega. Vega. You can't remember Vincent Vega, Las Vega? No, I Viva can't. Las Vega? Anyway, let's fly through the plot now, because we're, we're still talking about the film. Okay. They get a signal from Vega. It's real. They alert the media. They alert the intelligence. Something is happening. It's definitely a signal. Okay, they get they get an image. An image is being sent. What's the image? Well, there's a bit of static, but also it's Adolf Hitler. Ah! Adolf Hitler's in outer space. Yeah, so that's, that's scary. But why, know? Sean, why is it Adolf Hitler? Because that was the first international broadcast that was strong enough to send rays into space. Right, it's the 1936 Berlin Olympics, yeah. and the aliens have received that signal, and they're sending it back as if to say, we're here. Yeah, they're also sending back some weird kind of schematic, schema. I, it's also funny, they're, they're like, oh, we'll put it together and then we'll find the code, because it's, it's going to be a code, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, a lot of it's very convenient, you know? <laughs> As soon as the signal from the alien starts to come, the the division seems to be Jody versus everyone else. Yeah. So like everyone else seems to think, oh my god, they're gonna kill us. James Woods, as the man from the National Security oh, Administration, appalling. he just wants to bring in guns and like bomb the fuck out of the aliens. Whereas Jody makes the complete opposite assumption. Jody's like, they have to be peaceable, and they've been evolved into like they they, they know engineering that's beyond our furthest reaches of our imagination. And what if it's just like somewhere in between these two things? Anyway, yeah. obviously. As soon as this gets out into the media, people around the world are converging it's on the... Dodoverse. Yeah, just now, did, you, you, did you find that realistic? Yeah, like, I completely believe that would happen. It becomes it a kind of crazy, like, Burning Man site where people are, like, dressed as Elvis. Obese Americans with nothing better to do. <laughs> Bringing their RVs. Yeah, down. and also, who may, who actually, there are some real life figures who feature in the film. Now, people like Bernard Shaw, the CNN anchor, and Geraldine Ferraro. And Brian, Brian, oh, we'll get to Geraldine Ferraro. They, they don't mean much to you, Sean, but these were the real news reporters of America, particularly CNN in the late 90s. And of course, Larry King. You're, you're happy to see Larry King. Oh, yeah, there. Larry King looking like a healthy person. I don't know if anyone's watching The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Larry King is quite old now. So whenever he's in shot, he's always from very far away because he looks a bit like E.T. these days. <laughs> O.J. Simpson, but in this one, he only looks, you know... He's Larry King! He just yeah. looks like, like a, like a, a middle-aged troll. Yeah. Anyway, but there is another real-life person who features in about six or seven scenes, and that person is... So, oh, that person is... William Jefferson Clinton. Of course. The President of the United States. 
who appears to be a character in the film. So as soon as this is discovered, there's a press conference where head honcho White House official Angela Bassett introduces the president and in walks Bill Clinton and, and delivers some remarks. And he keeps appearing. At one point, there's a meeting in the Oval Office and there's Bill Clinton in the shot at the table next to Tom Skerritt. Yeah, that shot is the only bad bit. They repurposed various archival news footage of Clinton talking about other things. The, the funny thing is, though, okay, is that, like, I've looked at what these were. One was about, um, they thought they found some, like, bit of Mars in Antarctica or something. Yeah. It's like, the thing is, the president is not speaking with any of the, of the enthusiasm <laughs> that a person... <laughs> The head of state of, of, like, the First Nation of the world, having discovered alien life out there. Yeah. Like, he's just not enthusiastic. Let's acknowledge. He's not. Bill Clinton was a man who knew how to manipulate the media. Yeah. So if he had been president, when alien life forms got in contact with us, he would have been pulling the full Bill Pullman, right? Yeah. He would have been giving, like, a speech to end all speeches. Instead, he's just, like, acting as if this is, like, a run-of-the-mill event. Yeah. And then in walk Tom Skerritt and, yeah. like, and Angela waiting, Bassett. There was waiting to get Bill off the stage <laughs> to get the enthusiastic scientists on the stage. <laughs> Basically, at this point, Jody starts to get sidelined, which makes no sense. Like, no, actually, do you know what? This is the part that I could really get behind, is that it's, it's a film about these arsehole men who think they know better because they have a title. And she yes. done hours and years of research, and she sidelined. They, 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 this was an aspect of the film that I really liked and got really pissed off by. No, I understand that. So Jody is. I guess you understand that. Jo- You're not an idiot. <laughs> okay, I would understand why they would hold their closed door meetings with the president. Why the hell was Matthew McConaughey? So he pops back into the world. We, we, it should be said that, like, after he and Jody get it on, years pass, yeah, and they four. don't they don't seem to talk to each other. He becomes some sort of best-selling theologian guru. He's a pop theologian. He's basically Deepak Chopra. I do not understand. This is the one unbelievably <laughs> ludicrous part of the film. Why he is he in every single fucking meeting? They in have? the Oval freaking office with the president. And the scientist who discovered all this and who basically pieced it together <laughs> is always sitting on a chair outside waiting for, waiting for it to finish. It is insane. <laughs> it makes no sense. And he keeps popping up to her and being like, oh, here's a report on what was happening in the meeting, Jody. Yeah. <laughs> It's ludicrous. It's so ludicrous. So so what do the aliens' um, plans reveal once they've eventually decoded the whole thing? With the help of John Hurt, who flies in on his airplane, and he's actually the one who... Yeah, pieces it together probably. Yeah, because <laughs> their life forms are so evolved that they write on three-dimensional paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, 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 uh. So what? what is it that... So the, so the schematic is basically a cube. And they a cube. A oh cube. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's the schematic for some kind of transportation device, some very big transportation device. And this is where I really got into the movie because that's where it gets super sci-fi. So it's basically these two huge pillars, okay, yeah. going into the sky, and these kind of like uh, rings that will like spin around into a ball shape. Yeah, and, and some kind of like crane above that will drop a ball into it. And it's I was saying this just by watching the film. It's the kind of CGI that I really, really like, which is that it's really only ever shown in the distance. And it's used to show like some giant superstructure under construction. And I also love this about sci-fi films where the world only ever really comes together for scientific purposes. Do you notice that? It's like all our space missions are sent from Kazakhstan 
they're all they're yeah all contractors from japan all yeah. this stuff you know so everybody kind of gets involved in making it they say it is the most expensive project in all of human history yeah to send one person somewhere that they don't fully understand yeah. what it's going to be so this is this is the definition of a boondoggle yeah what's a boondoggle a boondoggle is like a giant public works project i would that, say a like, white elephant that would reveal that I'm American and I know what a boondoggle is. It's a, the definition of a boondoggle is the big dig for all our Bostonian listeners. The big dig. Expensive public works. Bury that highway under the ocean. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. And so the big question becomes, who is that person going to be? Now, you and I, Sean, went to the Science Museum here in London and we learned all about the early animals and people who got sent into space by the Russian cosmonauts. Now, Soviet cosmonauts. So, sorry, pardon me. Soviet cosmonauts. So, what kind of people got set into space? Were they nearsighted? <laughs> were they were they old? No, Yuri Gagarin was like a hunk of prime Georgian manhood. He wasn't Georgian? What where was he from? He was from Russia. Okay. Well, so basically, astronauts get sent into space when they're like able to withstand like amazing G force and like be completely physically fit. But for some reason, the top candidates to be sent into space appear to be Jody. <laughs> And Tom Skerritt. You know, I'd like a bit of Georgian beef going oh, into space. Keep going. So, so there becomes this. I like, see stars. <laughs> isn't I? It seems to have nothing to do with physical fitness or anything. It seems to have to do with I don't even know, like their no, philosophical I beliefs. I like this. I like this because they they're sending a representative of the entire Earth. You know, I mean, I was thinking it should be a woman because it's fifty one percent of the population is women. Yeah, like that. That's a. It should be like an Asian woman. Okay, but it was not. It, it was, was not. Tom Skerritt versus <laughs> Jodie Foster. Yeah. To be honest, everyone keeps saying, like, you might be giving up your life by going into this transporter because people have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. And also, even if the thing works, because it's faster than the speed of light, you'll be gone for four years and you'll come back and everyone else will have... Aged by 50. 50 years. And so basically, everyone you knew will be gone. Yeah. So it comes down to Jody versus Tom, and there are these international hearings about it. And who, what a jerk, who scuppers Jody's chances to be the astronaut? Okay, so it's Palmer Joss again. Palmer Joss keeps popping up. How could they possibly have formed a relationship? They've only met like three times over like seven years. Jody clearly is into Palmer Joss again, because at one point she pulls Angela Bassett aside and she's like, I have a really important problem. I need to find a really nice dress. <laughs> Sean, will you describe the dress that it's she like attends? It's like she's going to a Titanic party. I know. Literally like a Titanic party. But like, it's the 90s, bro. I know. She, yeah, except Titanic is set in the 1920s. Oh, yeah. She, <laughs> she wears this, like, insane hairdo. Crimped hair. Yeah. Oh, it's... it. Jody has never looked worse. And talk about... Jody's a stylish woman. Jody's always looks good. Yeah, no. She, no, no. She does her... I mean, maybe that's an example of how a scientist who's relatively socially inept would think to make herself look good. But You know, no, I'd wear I'd wear a, a, a tight-fitted blazer with no bra underneath. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I love that look. That was a great look from the 1991 Academy Awards. No, she wore a bra underneath that one. I'm talking about literally <laughs> just like, you know, plunging neckline. Very Charlotte Rampling in yeah. the Night Porter. That's even less. That's, That's just yeah. suspenders. So uh, she and Matthew McConaughey 
they, they sort of are starting, they make out in front of the Washington Monument. Their, their relationship seems to be rekindling. And then he's there in the hearings asking her the final crucial question. And what is the all-important thing that we need to know? Do you believe in God, Clarice? Yeah. I would have said, listen, over the last few years, we've all had our minds changed about what is intelligent life. I thought about this. What is intelligent life? And I'd say, well, you know what? I don't believe in like a big white, a big white man with a beard in the sky. I believe in, a, in some kind of infinite power that exists. Basically, and, and they keep making this point that, like, she's skeptical, she believes in the laws of science, 95% of the world believes in some kind of supreme being, so why would we send you? I don't know. This, this whole aspect of it struck me as a bit ridiculous. Okay, and this is where it gets a bit sci-fi and, and thriller-ish, okay? Yeah, yeah. So, at some points in the film, we've seen this, like, cuckoo, psycho bird, um... Like sort of preacher. like yeah, religious kind, preacher. Yeah, but with the eyes of a serial killer. But then Tom Skerritt has been selected as the the person who is meant to be sent into space, yeah. right, or wherever the wormhole. Yeah, and he's literally about to get into the space pod, and Jody's there in command center trying to hide her disappointment. And what happens? So Jody's watching the the video footage, the live video link, and she sees the crazy eyes right there. And it's quite scary. Like, I honestly got... It was tense. It was really tense. Yeah. He's packed with explosives. Yeah, like a shit ton of explosives. How on earth he got through security? Well, it's pre-9-11. So he blows up the first thing. Yeah, he blows up quite spectacularly as Yeah, well. he blows up the entire thing that they've spent trillions of dollars on, killing dozens of people. But conveniently, John Hurt flies in to let us know. Oh no, John Hurt is at this point or orbiting the Earth in the space station mirror. But he takes some time to let Jody know there's another one of these structures. They built a spare one in Japan. It's great. So this means that Jody can finally go. And, you know, now we get to the part of the film that, of course, everybody remembers, which is the real part where the special effects finally happen, really. And it, we're talking, this is like two hours into the movie. Like, this is a very long delay to go into another dimension. Well, she goes through a wormhole, wormholes, and she kind of like is hurtling across space and time. Yeah, and she's sort of shaking and morphing. Like at, at certain points, yeah. her face kind of gets blurry. A little and... bit of 90s morphing going on. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the black and white or white video. And then also like the walls of the space pods start to become translucent. Yeah, and... conveniently, allowing us to see outside. <laughs> Isn't it funny? Did you find it effective? Um, I did actually, to a certain degree. This is when our neighbors started banging on the roof. <laughs> um, so after two hours of philosophical talk and build-up of going into another dimension, we get this close-up of Jody staring at the universe and saying the the now famous line, I should have said a poet. It's It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, which... You know, the nebulae that she's looking at are quite beautiful. But then, she basically ends up in Club Med on, like, a beach. Club Med with four sons. Yeah, and who shows up? Her slightly better-looking father. She's on a beach, and there is her dead dad. Yeah, Papa, can you hear me? I know, this was like a rewrite of Yentl. Papa, can you find me in the night? That, Ellie Arroway is Yentl. <laughs> 
Did you find this to be an anticlimax that you, you travel all the way into outer space and all you get is a beach holiday with your father? No, it makes sense. You know, they take the form that we'd be able to... Uh, Does it really live. make sense? It's some kind of alien life form, but they've downloaded her memories so that she'll somehow be more at home and talking to them. But the message that the father slash alien delivers is of very little significance. Yeah, isn't he it? He says, like, humans are... are Capable of such beauty, but also such hate and destruction. Yes, such powerful dreams and such terrible nightmares. Oh, really? Is that it? Yes, something like that. He also says that, like, you know, for, for billions of years, what we've been doing is having people contact us, having a brief moment with them and sending them back. But that's what doesn't make any sense. If these people are so into knowledge and their diagrams and all this stuff, yes, make contact, but exchange something. Like... Ask her for information about the planet Earth. They seem remarkably uncurious about the planet Earth. No, but they know they'll go back, you know? Yeah, after spending trillions more dollars. Yeah, but that's... Or whatever alien currency they have to spend. Yen. <laughs> Yen, yeah. Um, but Brian, I can totally get that. Okay. This is the part where you are a non-believer and I am a believer. Do you want to yell at me again? <laughs> no. After two and a half hours waiting for this, it did slightly seem like a letdown to yeah, me. Yeah, but we're not we're not finished yet. Like, no, so the because whole there's point, a coda. Yeah, well, it's not really a coda. It's kind of like a crux of the film, which is that basically what, what transpired on Earth is that she drops straight through the... The, the, the rings and ends up in the water. Yeah, so as far as everyone on Earth saw... It was just a few seconds of her plummeting into the ocean. But to Jody, it felt like 18 hours of an experience yeah. in outer space. Yeah. And then, like, she has absolutely no evidence, no proof, no nothing. And then this huge big tribunal uh, starts in which the question is now turned on her. And and this is the kind of the philosophical, the theological part of it. This is where she and Palmer Joss meet in the middle, you know. And they realize they can be together because they're two people who believe. Here we have headstrong Jody who only believes in science. Science, 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 all the way through. It has to be proof. And the entire thing is structured to make her acknowledge in the end that maybe there are some things that you just have to take on faith. Yeah. Isn't that annoying? Such as love. I had an experience. I can't. Prove it. I can't even explain it. But everything that I know as a human being, everything that I am tells me that it was real. I was given something wonderful, something that changed me forever. A vision of the universe that tells us undeniably how tiny and insignificant and how rare and precious we all are. A vision that tells us that we belong to something that is greater than ourselves, that we are not, that none of us are alone. She's both a woman and someone who believes in pure rationality. And because it's an American movie, we want to see her tamed and brought to faith yeah, rather than absolutely. science. Absolutely, that's, that's the American movie industry. We need to have her espouse some form of wishy-washy religious belief. She can't be a scientist. This movie is anti-science in the end. I'd like if she went through the wormhole and she came back and she was like, I'm a lesbian now. <laughs> She's like, where's Angela? <laughs> oh my God. Can you imagine if she and Angela Bassett got it on instead of Palmer Joss? Oh my God. That would have been hot. That would have been so... Angela Bassett is gorgeous in this film. I am so into lesbianism. <laughs> I think it's the only way. 
<laughs> that is not getting edited out. Okay, so Sean, so the, the, it ends on a kind of odd, no, well, not odd, but a kind of one of those dun-dun-dun notes because basically it becomes a, like, did you believe Dr. Arroway or not, right? She says she had this experience and the hearings seem to conclude that, well, there's no proof but Angela Bassett seems to be sitting on some information. Yeah, so we find out at the very end of it that, you know, nothing happened, she didn't go anywhere, but her headset recorded 18 hours of static. Yeah, which... It's impossible, really. Yeah, yeah. it's impossible. But for some reason, the White House just decides <laughs> to sit on this and to only <sighs> confront now Senator Ted Cruz slash James Woods. Yeah. This is where it gets deeply, deeply frustrating. You know? <laughs> and Jody goes back to just run some science programs in New Mexico with some, some small children, and she kind of carries on the passing of the torch of the beauty of science and telling some little Latino children, There can be miracles <laughs> when you believe. What she literally says is, keep searching for your own answers. Yeah, it was, That would have been a great outro song, wouldn't it? <laughs> it really would. Was Hollywood going through a bit of a spiritual phase at that point? Because The Prince of Egypt came out at the same time, and that had a deeply religious song. But you you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it, yeah. What did you take away from it? it I don't know. It has a very 90s aesthetic of being not really anything, you know? Just looking like a movie. Well, also, it struck me that at one point they say something, something, something about the millennium, and I was thinking, there is something about the 90s that we were on very this... Very late like, 90s as well. Yeah, we're on this cusp, right? The Cold War is over. We haven't yet entered our current era. War on the, terror. the war on terror slash clash of civilizations. We're in the Clinton era of, like, massive profits before the banking crisis collapsed at all. There is this sense of, you know, at least from an American context, we have plentiful resources, but what are we going to do with ourselves? And there is this idea of where do we look for? We look even further to find some kind of answers. Absolutely. Yeah. And can we just wrap up by talking about Jodie Foster? Like, we have made fun of her quite a bit. Yeah, but she's great. She's really, really good. She's really good in this. Yeah, I mean, she holds it together with a kind of a touch of class that only an actress like her could bring. She seems hard-headed, but also sympathetic. There's no point in the film where you're like, Jesus, get to the point, you know? She's so determined. She's so fierce and feisty. Every time she was going to end up with Matthew McConaughey, I was just like, run the other way. Just yeah. go buy a vibrator. Yeah. Like, honestly, Jody, you'd be, you'd be happier listening to your radio pulsars and getting your own pulses yeah. from, from your own hand. Like, yeah. that's what Ellie Arroway should be doing. And I, it was unclear whether she and Palmer Joss... No, she should be having sex with her blind colleague. They, yeah. They genuinely seem to like each other. They're totally on the same page. Yeah. And, you know, they can get off on each yeah, other. Yeah, but Jodie is kind of the only person who could sell this because she's, she's just earnest and flinty enough to make it believable. Could you imagine another actress in it? In the role? What about Meryl? <laughs> Meryl would seem too much like a grand dame. Yeah. You know, the obvious choices would be someone like Holly Hunter or, or um, Hilary Swank. It, it, they have to have something of that diminutive, scrappy quality. Well, I mean, no, like, it couldn't be Hilary Swank, she'd be far too young. And Holly Oh, and if you imagine Sigourney, again, she's sort of too towering. It's funny, because if it was Sigourney Weaver, they'd be like, oh, you want to go to space? Yeah, cool. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Just let's make sure you don't have any eggs inside here. Okay, well, 
ladies and gentlemen, we are not going to do any more sci-fi for the foreseeable future. Have you enjoyed this little intergalactic uh, sojourn that we've made for one month, Sean? Yeah, very much so. You know, I really enjoyed Contact much more than Alien Resurrection. Because it's just a good film, you know? Yeah. You like the it. only reason that I would want to see Contact again is if it was remade with the original director and original cast. Oh my god. Of, so right. Sean did some research. So the George Miller version was going to have Jodie, but also... Ray Fiennes as Power Joss. Power Joss would still be pointless, let's point that out. Yeah. But the president was going to be played by Linda Hunt. Oh, could you imagine? Oh my god. Wouldn't I, that be amazing? I would pass over any real presidential footage to just have the idea of President Linda Hunt. <laughs> otherwise known as the tree from Pocahontas. <laughs> the tree from Pocahontas as the president. Anyway, alright. So I think this has been this has been a podcast that's nearly as long as Contact itself. So um should we tell everybody what our next film is going to be? Yeah, we're gonna go for a bit of a departure. Our next film is going to be Serial Mom, the John Waters film starring Kathleen Turner, which Brian has not seen. Don't send me hate mail. This might be my first John Waters movie. Are you for real? I'm totally for real. Are you for real? I think I am. Have you ever seen yeah. Pecker? No, no, no. Cecil B. Demented? No. So if you want to see Not me... Not even, like, Pink Flamingos. Or no. If you want to see me <gasps> lose... Oh my God. Lose... Get my water broken. My waters are going to break. Uh, join us next time for Serial Mom. Um, Sean, can I also make a very self-interested plug about something that has nothing to do with film? <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, I, sorry if you don't live in London, but if you do and you like female-driven stories, I have spent the last year writing one. It is a play. It is called We Wait in Joyful Hope, and tickets are now on sale at Theatre 503 in Battersea, South London. You can go to www.theatre503.com. Look up We Wait in Joyful Hope. It opens on the 17th of May. If you like female-driven stories as we do, you will love the story of a crusading activist nun. I can't wait till we do the film version of this, Sean, right? It's gonna, who's who's going to be playing the lead role in my play well, when, when it's Kathy finally Bates. Made. Kathy Bates, no question. And who's going to be the second role? Maybe Joan Allen Ooh. in a bit of a Bonneville reunion. I like that. Yeah. I like that. So, ladies Nobody will go to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to it several times. Sean's going to come dressed in the same dress and wig that Jodie wore when she went to the Washington Gala in uh, Contact. He's going to look like a 90s version of Kate Winslet. It's going to be very exciting. Yes, it yeah. is. Okay. Whatever you say, Brian. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. If you do like Broad Appeal, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcast. It helps other people um, find it too. You can also follow us on Twitter at Broad Appeal Pod. You can find us on our website at www.broadappealpod.com. And we also have some individual Twitter handles. I'm at Sean McGovern X. And I'm at B.A. Mullen Speaks. Leave us ratings and reviews. We will send them off into the cosmos. <laughs> Hopefully Adolf Hitler will not reply. And we will see you in two weeks' time for some serial killing. Bye. Bye-bye.
it's hard to kill. 